0: from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. Chapter 6, the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his faith, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I... Then he said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. At a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, and the holy seed shall be its stump. This is the word of the Lord. The
1: Messianic King. We're going to be examining what the prophet Isaiah, and am I being I sc- Yes. My apologies. I am Scottish. I'm afraid I say Isaiah. You did say Isaiah. Yes. So it doesn't really matter. Neither form bears much relation to the Hebrew. (laughs) We're going to be examining what the prophet Isaiah tells us about the Messiah. This week, thinking mainly of the messianic king and looking principally at the earlier chapters of the prophecy... And next week, God willing, we'll look at the suffering servant and the message of the later chapters of the prophecy. But before we come to look at Isaiah's prophecy, it's useful to set it against its total biblical background. It's useful to place it in terms of the unfolding redemptive purpose of God. I suppose... We're all prone at one time or another to look at past events and wonder what would have happened if instead of the choices we actually made, something else had happened at key stages in our lives. And we try to work out the different, the alternative scenario that would have resulted from that. Well, theologians are not immune from constructing alternative scenarios. And one of the most intriguing of those alternative scenarios is prompted by the question, what would have happened had mankind never fallen? Creation was never intended to be static. Even before the fall, Adam was... Instructed by God, given a program in terms of increasing the numbers of his offspring, exploiting the resources of the world in which he'd been placed. There was a program of development intended to show that there was going to be progress. The world had been created, mankind had been placed in it, but it was something that was going to move forward there was a goal in view. Now, how that goal would have been reached and what the precise outcome of successful adherence to the creation program would have been, well, these are matters we can't really determine now. But there's no doubt about the dynamic inherent in the realm that God created there was a dynamic intended to foster trustful and beneficial relationships between the God of creation and mankind whom he had created. And what is significant for us this evening is that that same element of dynamic, progress, movement towards a goal is maintained in God's gracious provision for fallen mankind. Right from the start, in the first presentation of the gospel, in the Protevangelium of Genesis three fifteen, what God presents is not maintenance of the status quo, not preservation of man at a level of fallenness. God rather presents a promise a program, a program of development and of achievement to form the focus of faith. Surprisingly, it's to the serpent God speaks. But when he turns and addresses the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the rest of the history of the world is the outworking of that basic promise. The development of what is going to occur even in fallen creation is a development that is moving forwards in a God-controlled fashion towards the target the goal that God has in view. Yes, it's a different environment. It's now an environment of tension and hostility. I will put enmity. But it is against that background of tension that there will be worked out this divine purpose of moving forward to the target God has in view. The offspring of the woman, though suffering as to his heel from the onslaught of the adversary, is going to be able to deal a mortal blow to the enemy. God instituted the enmity, but the program that God has in view places on the offspring of the woman. The role of inflicting the decisive blow against the power of evil. God didn't explain it all, all at once. He revealed enough for faith to grasp that a promise had been made. For faith to grasp that that promise would ensure progress towards victory. And over the centuries, God gave greater clarity regarding the way the promise would be realized. And in particular, in the face of the repeated failure of the offspring of the woman to achieve victory over Satan and his offspring, it was revealed that there was going to be a coming king who would act. On behalf of his people and provide them with success. It was a way of recapturing what had been lost. Because when Adam, unfallen, was placed in the world and placed particularly in Eden, Adam was placed there as God's representative king. He was crowned with glory and honor, as the psalmist, as David puts it in Psalm 8. Adam was given there an executive role to rule and determine, to use and exploit all the resources in the domain of creation. And in God's redemptive purpose, in God's purpose for recovering the lost world and bringing it back to himself, it is to a similar figure that he allots the basic, central, key role. There is one who is going to function as king so that God's fallen creation can be brought back into true fellowship with himself. I think the first formal mention of kings in this connection is what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 6. When he said of Abraham's offspring, kings shall come from you. And a little later in the book of Genesis, we see that this aspect had caught the attention of the patriarchs. In his farewell address, Jacob in Genesis 49 sees the regal office as being exercised through the tribe of Judah. And of course, as you know, there was a massive disclosure of God's purpose of a, for a kingly figure in connection with the revelation of the Davidic covenant and the establishment of the monarchy amongst the chosen people. But scripture records the history of that monarchy. And the history of that monarchy is a history of failure. Failure. Not David, not Solomon, and certainly none of the kings that succeeded them. None of them were able to achieve the victory that would ensure the defeat of Satan, that would ensure the overthrow of the realm of evil. Indeed, as the monarchy, the period of the kingdom proceeded, matters degenerated among the chosen people. And it is at that stage that we come across the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah is ministering to the people of God at a time when the realization of the promise seems even further off than before. And he begins his prophecy by being as blunt as you can be. He calls the people rebels. Ungrateful, a sinful nation, as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapters 1 to 5 of the prophecy, he brings forward lots of evidence of the failure of the people. And so at the end, towards the end of chapter 5, we have the verdict announced. Therefore the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people. And for those against whom the anger of the Lord is kindled, there doesn't seem to be much future. So that Isaiah's talking to people who are asking, was there ever anything to this promise? Is there any way in which we can have hope for the future? Is our king going to be able to give us a lead? So that he's going to really fulfill the role that God has for the king descended from David. Was it not God's promise that a kingly figure was going to achieve the victory? And in chapter 7 of the prophecy, Isaiah records his interview with King Ahaz. And what's revealed there is the extent of the king's rebellion and unbelief. The prophet challenges him. If you will not stand in the faith, you will not stand at all. And the king refuses to comply. The king has his own ideas. He's going to work in terms of earthly wisdom. He's got a scheme for the restoration of the fortunes of his people. And God is not in the picture. The prophet's instructed to challenge the king. He's to go to him and say, choose any sign you want. Ask for a thunderstorm in the sky. Ask for an earthquake below. And the Lord will provide it so that you will accept and believe the word I'm bringing. So that there will be testimony to the truthfulness, the God origin Of what I'm saying. And the king who's already closed his mind says. With a pretense of piety. I'll not tempt God. I'm going my own way. Ahaz does not want to be convinced. He's already made up his own mind. And Isaiah is ministering in a situation. Where the current ruler of the house of David is going to lead the Lord's people into disaster, set them on a path that eventually led them off into exile. But before I pursue that line of thought further, there's just something else we really ought to notice. Because whenever you try to work out what Isaiah is thinking, when you try to get behind uh, the way in which God directed his mind and illuminated his faculties so that he understood uh, more deeply what was going on in the world around him, understood more deeply uh, God's purposes for his people, whenever you try to do that, you have to come back to that chapter that was read, uh, chapter 6 of the prophecy which is a record of the call of Isaiah. He tells there of his inaugural vision, perhaps five years before the incidents in chapter 7. And in that inaugural vision, there was deeply impressed upon the prophet a number of basic truths Prominent amongst them was the simple fact, the Lord rules. In the year of King Uzziah's death, once more a king who at one stage in his life had promise was probably a good man but who went off the rails in many ways. He's dead. Another stage in the development of the kingdom has been reached. But high above it all there is the Lord enthroned, Surrounded by the praise of the seraphs. And Isaiah is impressed with the perpetuity and the reality of the the divine control exercised by the Lord of hosts. Earthly rulers disappoint. Even the kings of David's line fail to match up to what's required of them. But the Lord still rules. And that vision of the Holy One, resplendent on his heavenly throne, that realization of the whole earth being full of his glory, permeated Isaiah's thinking then and continued to be the basis for his vision thereafter. (laughs) But there was something else as well. Isaiah was impressed by a sense of his own sinfulness. The prophet who's going to say so much against kings and politicians is made to realize in the presence of the living God that he himself is no better. The seraphic choir sounds... The temple threshold shakes and the prophet says, woe is me, I am undone, I'm silenced, I'm wiped out. And so are the people with me. I am as much a failure as the nation of which I'm part, as much a failure as the kings who sought to rule it. And then, of course, you know how the prophet is shown the possibility of forgiveness through sin being atoned for. And he's also told about the inevitability of divine judgment coming on the people. But even though the judgment was going to be severe and repeated, there was still the glimmer of hope. The holy seed is its stump. Right at the end of chapter 6. A very enigmatic statement indeed. But one which Isaiah was privileged to be able to shed greater light on. And that's what he does in the following chapters of the prophecy. Chapters 7 through to 12. And what I want to do now is to look with you at three of the key prophecies in that portion of the book. That portion of the book where Isaiah is coming as the Lord's prophetic spokesman, dealing with the reality of a people who have sinfully departed from the Lord, saying to them, yes, this sin will be punished, but also saying to them, there is a glimmer of light. There is more than a glimmer of light, because along with the reality of the doom Awaiting the people, there is also the Lord's redemptive provision, a provision that focuses on the person of the Messiah. And of course, the first passage that one wants to look at is Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The well-known and controversial words Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now those words have caused controversy over the centuries. In the Christian church, the traditional view is that here we have a direct prophecy of the coming of Christ. And it's in that sense that the verse is cited in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The traditional interpretation does have some problems, but it is still a robust interpretation. And I want to set it out in just a little bit more detail before we look at possible objections and other interpretations. It begins, therefore. And very often in the prophets, therefore introduces a statement of judgment arising out of what's preceded. And that seems to be the case here also. Ahaz, the king, the representative of the house of David, has been challenged by God Challenged as to his faith or lack of it. He has been asked, choose this sign. Make it as high as you want or as low as you want. Nothing's debarred. And this sign will authenticate the message that the Lord's prophet is bringing. And he has us spurn, the offer of a sign. And so the prophet says... You're going to have a sign. It's not one you've chosen. It's one the Lord himself will give. And the word for Lord there is the word Adonai. If you have a Bible that uses small capitals to denote Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenant name of God, you'll see it's not the covenant name that's used in this verse. It's the word Adonai, the sovereign one, the one who is omnipotently in control of the whole realm of creation. And he is going to choose, and he is going to provide a sign, and it's a sign for you. Many modern translations quite correctly indicate in the margin at that point that that you is plural, at this point the prophet is not just addressing the king he's addressing the royal court who are there with the king as he conducted uh, his inspection of the defenses of Jerusalem Ahab has refused to trust he's exposed not only himself but the house of david the whole nation to divine just judgment But after that judgment, there's still a promise. There's still a promise that the Lord's going to fulfill because he has said, my steadfast love will not depart from the house of David. Ahaz's line is doomed, but the Lord gives a sign to be realized in the future that bears the unmistakable mark of its divine origin. Through miraculous divine intervention, the dynasty of David will be assured. And it is in terms of this sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive. It doesn't really bear thinking about the amount of scholarly ink that has been used on the word virgin. But it does seem that that is the best translation of the word. The best evidence for that is the fact that the pre-Christian translators of the Old Testament into Greek used the, word, the Greek word for virgin in translating this passage 300, two to three hundred years before the birth of Christ. The word is used, never used, of a married woman. It's used of a girl of marriageable age and indicates one who is a virgin. And the message is the prophet sees through the Lord's inspiration such a woman as being with child and as giving birth. And as naming that child, Emmanuel, God with us. All these aspects were unusual. Generally naming a child was the father's responsibility. But here it falls on the mother. And she shows her awareness of the significance of her son by giving this name, God with us. It's not a name that's used, Emmanuel's not a name that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And its significance goes beyond merely saying God is going to help his people. It probably is here divinely given to prefigure something of the enfleshment of God on earth, uniquely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And indeed, I think this particular prophecy, which gives considerable emphasis to the mother of the child as much as to the child himself, is itself a reflection that what is being outworked here is a fulfillment of the protoevangelium, which focused on the seed of the woman. The the way in which it was phrased in Genesis 3 was deliberately divinely expressed to allow for the coming reality that God knew all about. And similarly here the focus is on something that disinherits Ahaz and his line from being involved in this new lease of life for the Davidic dynasty. And focuses rather on the fact that this is a messianic figure. God's promise of salvation didn't depend on Ahaz. The king had rejected the Lord. But God is going to give a sign that will act to provide uniquely for his people. Now such an interpretation of the passage is refuted by many. I'm not going to consider, although it's a very common view, that this passage is just the prophecy of an event that took place in the time of Ahaz. The simplistic view is that Isaiah's prediction, referring to the virgin is just referring to that young woman standing over there in the crowd. she's not yet married, she shortly will be, and when her child comes to maturity in two or twelve years whenever the two nations of which Ahaz is so frightened will have met their doom. There are those who take the passage as having nothing miraculous in it at all, but that is style of interpretation does not do justice to the passage. Here is a king who has rejected a sign of the thunderstorm or the earthquake or whatever. And it's an absolute anticlimax to say that the Lord is going to provide you a sign that somebody's is going to give birth to a child. It doesn't warrant behold, never mind being a sign from the Lord himself. But it must be admitted that the traditional interpretation does have a problem. And the problem is not with verse 14, but with the following verses, 15, 16, 17. Because if this is a direct prophecy of the birth of Christ... How is it that uh, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste? And so there are conservative interpreters who say perhaps this is one of these prophecies that's got two fulfillments. Something at a lower level happened in Ahaz's day. But the full impact of the words was reserved for the coming of our Lord. Some very reputable scholars argue that what's being talked about is the birth of Hezekiah. Others say it was the birth of Isaiah's other son, Maharshal al-Hajbaz, who's mentioned in verse 8. I just always smile at the picture of his mother calling him in for tea, but that's (laughs) another (laughs) matter.
0: Scholars
1: tend to look for something that would have spoken directly to Ahaz in his own day. And if there was a child born then, then it's easy to explain that before that child is two or three years old, Samaria would have fallen, the northern kingdom, and there would be, another ten years later, the complete collapse of the northern kingdom. But does that do justice to what is being said here? There are those who say, really, in this passage, you've got two different prophecies. And in verse 15, it's another child altogether who's being talked about. There's some evidence to support that. I emphasize that the you in verse 14 is plural. But the you, the land of the two kings, Eudred at the end of verse 16 is singular. The focus of the prophet's speech has changed by that point. And if you look back to earlier in the chapter, when Isaiah was told to go and confront King Ahaz, he was told to take his son, another son, Shear-Jashub, with him. And he's never mentioned again. And there are those commentators who say, perhaps that's the explanation. That verse 14 is a prophecy of Christ. And verses 15 to 17 are in fact referring to the son Shirzashub, perhaps still a very young child whom Isaiah had in his arms at that point. I have to admit I don't think any scholar has really solved this question. There are some Scholars from whom I have the highest respect, say Alec Matir. I thought he was an Englishman, but tonight I'm told he's Irish. But... He is. Um, in his commentary, he says, Isaiah now allows Ahaz to believe that the birth of Emmanuel is imminent and does so for a reason that hindsight justifies. The king of Assyria would leave the house of David, only the semblance of monarchy. The reality would never be restored. Thus Isaiah concertinas the centuries. For when Emmanuel was born, he inherited only the memory of a kingdom and a non-existent crown. And it was all Ahaz's fault. get the impression he's struggling a bit with that explanation. But everyone seems to be. It is part of the measure of the magnitude of what was being revealed to Isaiah that words just, the prophet could not get words to put across what had been told to him. He's standing before the remarkable, the astounding fact of the virgin giving birth. And he follows it up with statements that do relate to Ahaz's own day. Perhaps he just takes the life, uh, length of life, the period of life of the Messiah who is to come and uses it as a yardstick. To measure off the periods of time and he has his own day. Perhaps there is, as Muthier suggests, this concertinaing of the centuries. Because as the prophet himself was looking forward, quite often the prophets were not able to separate the immediate future from the distant future. God revealed to them truths that would happen. He was saying the Messiah is going to come, Emmanuel is going to come, but he didn't separate it off in such a way that they could immediately recognize the timescale involved. Perhaps that's what it is. So there are problems with the traditional interpretation. But the point I want to emphasize is the problems are not with verse 14. The problems are fitting in, verses 15 and 16, into a picture of what happened that day. The message Isaiah brought to Ahaz, the rebel, the renegade, the one who had turned his back on the Lord, was, the Lord is going to work out his purposes even if it takes this astounding, miraculous way to do it, if this is the only option that is left, then this is where the Lord (laughs) is going. There will be a birth that shows the control of God in the provision of the one who will realize the kingly purpose, who will restore Adam's kingship in creation who will restore to the people who trust in the Lord leadership that is worthy of the name, leadership that will bring them closer to God, leadership that will enable them to find the answer to the problems of life. And Isaiah develops that further. Again, a well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, this message of the coming king is set against the background of Isaiah's own day. Not this time in terms of the internal problems of the monarchy, but in terms of the external threats facing the people. Back at the beginning of the chapter mentions made of Zebulun, of Naphtali, of the area around the Sea of Galilee. And those were the first areas that were conquered by the Assyrian superpower As it moved into the area from the north. And Isaiah is looking at the dejection and the despair. At the gloom that existed in those areas in his own day. They were already conquered. They were already in foreign hands. But the prophet never sees doom on its own. The Lord always reveals to him that his judgment will be followed by restoration. And here there is restoration that is expressed in terms of the coming Messiah. There's a picture of the downtrodden area around the Sea of Galilee and slightly to the north. A picture in verse 3 of them rejoicing. And there's three sets of reasons given for that rejoicing. In verse 4, it's because the oppressor will be defeated. In verse 5, it is a picture of all vestiges of militarism being destroyed. And then finally and climactically in verse 6, there is the third reason why there will be rejoicing, why there will be light in the gloom and the darkness of the people of Naphtali and Zebulun. There will arrive the royal agent through whom the Lord will effect this transformation of his people's fortunes. For to us a child is born, to us a child. A son is given. An oblique passive probably does denote divine agency. To us a son is given is a way of saying God will give us a son. The miraculous birth that was foretold in chapter 7 is now described again. But whereas in chapter 7 all we are told is the name of the child Emmanuel, here there is further description of his character and of his agency. The prophet in vision is looking forward, is being empowered by the Spirit to look forward and to see something of the wonder of what will be made over to us, the Lord's people, the people who have trust in God's promise with the coming of this Son. And both the words child and son are Brought forward in their clauses. And again, this links up with the language of the Protevangelium back in the original Genesis promise. It also links in with a psalm like Psalm 2, where the Lord says to the anointed ruler, You are my son, this day I have become your father. And here we see the child presented as ruler the government will be on his shoulder. On him will devolve the responsibility of maintaining the security of the Lord's people and providing for their needs. Back in verse 4, there had been talk of the the burden that was on the shoulders of the people. Uh, The burden that had been there uh, through the yoke that had been imposed on them by their oppressors. But here in chapter nine in this verse in chapter in verse six we see that the government the resolution of the needs of the people is going to be on the shoulders of this child who comes. And his name will be called. Now again there is a matter of controversy. Because this passage was cited so often by the early Christian church, medieval Jewish rabbis tried to translate it a different way. And they favored the translation, God who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God and eternal father, will call his name the Prince of Peace. And you'll find modern scholars adopting that way of rendering the words that became prevalent in the medieval period amongst Jewish exegetes. But it actually goes contrary to the requirements of Hebrew grammar. And the translation that is customary in English versions is the appropriate translation. There is a fourfold name. And the name expresses the character and the duties to be carried out by this individual. So vast is the potential of the one who's being described that one description won't do. It requires four. And the first of these descriptions, although sometimes treated as two separate terms, really because of the other three being double-barreled descriptions, really has to be taken the same way. The word wonderful indicates something that goes beyond human experience, human expectation. I suppose the word extraordinary has become rather debased nowadays. But that's really what it's saying. Here is someone out of the ordinary, someone who does not conform to the sorts of ideas that you had about such a person. It's a word that's used of the Lord himself in chapter 28, verse 29. And here it's particularly being applied in the realm of counsel, The Messiah is being described as divinely extraordinary, standing apart from others in the area of counsel. Now, what did a counselor do in the ancient world? A counselor, well, I suppose it would be the equivalent to the modern presidential special advisor. You can think of who that might be in... It's someone who is supposed to have insight into the current state of affairs and someone who is also able to present the ruler with appropriate policies for improving the current state of affairs. So when the Messiah is here called a wonder of a counsellor, he is being described as having wisdom that enables him to analyze the situation, particularly the situation of his people, because it's to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he is the counselor who is able to analyze our situation with a wisdom that leaves no aspect out of the picture, and who also possesses the insight into the solution that will deal with the situation that has been analyzed and perceived. So here we have, first of all, one who is a wonder of a counselor because his wisdom is not limited either in terms of the perception of the problem or in terms of the solution that will resolve the problem. He's then described as mighty God. Mighty talks of the strength, the heroism of a soldier. One who is able to defend others from their enemies. or One who is able to carry through all that has been planned. But he is described not simply as a mighty man. He is described as mighty God. And that same phrase, the same identical words, mighty God, are applied in chapter 10, verse 21, to the Lord himself. What is being said in this phrase is nothing less than the divine nature of the one being described. The one who is born, the one who is a child born, a son given, is also being described in language that cannot be justly interpreted as anything other than the ascription of deity. Isaiah had this revealed to him. Isaiah states this combination, but there's no explanation. It's the facts that are presented. The fuller explanation followed in the process of redemptive history. And then there is the title that causes us most problems. Everlasting Father or Eternal Father. But we have to realize that the problems are ours because we've got the word Father so very much associated with the Trinity. Nothing wrong with that. But here is Isaiah speaking in Old Testament times when the reality of the Trinity had not yet been clearly revealed. And he is talking here of a royal figure. And part of the vocabulary of the ancient world was to see the king as the father of his people. And it is that role that I think is being described here. It is not a blurring of Trinitarian distinctions. That that wasn't in Isaiah's mind. That wasn't what was revealed to him. He is talking about a king. A king who is a counselor. A king who is mighty. And here, a king who is father. Who exercises care and concern on behalf of his people. A care and concern modeled on the care and concern of God himself. Unlike the reign of even the most outstanding of earthly monarchs, here is one who will act to meet the needs of his people and will do so eternally, everlastingly. Human kings come and go. But here is the one who abides forever. The everlasting father. And the final description is also a royal description. Prince of peace. Again, the word peace, shalom, used a lot in the Old Testament. We should never limit it simply to the concept of absence of war. The peace that is being described by Shalom is a peace that denotes total well-being. It is not just absence of external aggression. It is fundamentally absence of any tension between an individual or a community and their God. And when the Messiah is described as the Prince of Peace, he is being described as the one who provides his people with all that they require to meet the full potential of their beings, to meet the full potential of their existence. And in Scripture, that is especially their potential in relationship with God. He is the one who provides a total security, that transcends and eclipses eclipses. any social, political, or economic achievement. It is fundamentally spiritual because peace is not attained until there is a total, all-encompassing relationship with the God who is our creator. These assertions are followed by, in verse 7, quite a number of features of this rule it's going to be one with no end it's going to be dynamic there will be increase increase of his government and of peace it's not going to be a static situation but one that will be increasingly characterized by justice and righteousness the ideal of the king, the king whose regime has nothing false in it and whose regime corresponds precisely to the standards that God requires. And there is the final word of guarantee. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. This is a passionate commitment on the part of the Lord it's not an accidental footnote in the history of the world. We're not here talking about something that almost a take it or leave it aspect of existence. Here is something that is promoted by the Lord himself who will not permit his vision and purpose for his people to be shadowed by anything else at all. He will brook no rival In their attachment to him, he will allow no obstacle to deflate them from being reunited with him. And what comes with the Messiah is not merely the provision of divine wisdom and power, not merely the provision of divine care, but the absolute guarantee that is from the Lord's own Intense commitment to all that he shall achieve. And then finally, there is the passage at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now I'm just having to pick verses out. Do go and read the previous chapter, because it ends with the mighty forest of earthly power exemplified by Assyria hewn down. And that's what's behind this imagery using based on trees at the beginning of verse eleven of chapter eleven. The forest of Assyrian power is levelled by the Lord. But here, out of that devastation, the Lord will act to raise up the messianic king to rule over and provide for his people. At first it's just the merest sign of growth. From a seemingly dead tree stump there appears a shoot, a green shoot. The tree to all appearances looked dead. You'd have written it off. You'd have said there's no more hope for it. But there was still sustenance beneath And the shoot appeared under divine control in the way the Lord wanted it. But notice how that shoot is described it is a shoot from the stump of Jesse, it's not a shoot from the stump of David if you had been looking for the messianic king, he is thought of very much as David's greater son. But here the reference goes one stage further back. It goes back to David's father. And it's saying, this prophecy is saying, it's not going to be from the remains of the monarchy. It's not going to be from the Disaster zone that Ahaz has created through his, his false um, alliances, through his reliance on worldly wisdom. Go back further. Go back to the humble obscurity of Bethlehem. It's from those insignificant beginnings. Those beginnings from which the house of David first sprang that it will again come. There is going to be both continuity and significant discontinuity. Back to the stump of Jesse. And then there is this second metaphor, um, looking not at the shoot, but looking at the root. The, uh, The idea is that there is going to be growth coming from what is at present hidden. Growth that is going to result in fruit. The potential of the situation will be realized. Many a gardener looked at a plant in the garden and said, Oh, it's beginning to sprout this spring. And then something goes wrong a few weeks later. But here, this new beginning, this new start, is one that is predestined. To bear fruit. And then there's the grand description. Of the empowerment. Given by the spirit. Coming upon the Messiah. So that he is equipped for every task. Again there is wisdom and understanding. Again there is counsel and might. Again knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Here is a king. Who matches up. To the Lord's requirements. Here is one who will totally and completely fulfill the role that has been given him and will do so not through constraint but with delight. If there is one feature of this uh, description of the Messiah here, it is that I want you to take away with you it's his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is the measure of the Messiah. Not someone who had an office thrust on him, duties and responsibilities assigned that he went through in some mechanical way, but one who truly delighted. There's a a play in the Hebrew words uh, between spirit and delight. They sound very similar because of the Spirit's indwelling, there will be messianic delight and satisfaction in working out this role. It will not be a burden. It will not be an imposition. It will be one that he will rejoice in carrying forward. There is the dark note. He will strike the earth. The messianic king is not to be thought of as a figure of weakness. He is the one who is strong and valiant for the truth. He is the one who will require righteousness, equity, and will expose all situations where those do not prevail. But he will carry forward his task in such a way that the conditions of Eden will return. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 9. And it's a picture of a mission carried through to completion with a universal gathering of his people from every land and summoning every nation into this kingdom. This was the message Isaiah was given to present to the people. At times when they'd lost their bearings. At time at a time when there was pressure from without, external aggression. First of all from the northern kingdom against Judah and also the Aramean kingdom from Syria coming south. But much more so the Assyrians coming from Nineveh behind them. It was at a time when the land had lost its way, when internally uh, the people no longer were being shown the way of truth, Uh, when the standards of the public policy of the day was dictated by political expediency, by what seemed right to an individual, to the king himself. And Isaiah is given this message to present, this message that looks beyond The prevailing corruption. And focuses on the figure of the Messiah. The Messiah who will be provided in a divinely unique way. The Messiah who will come to answer the problems of the gloom of his people. By giving them renewed vision of his purpose. The Messiah who will be completely and utterly adequately equipped for his task in such a way that it will move forward to completion. We no longer look for a Messiah who will come from Bethlehem. But we still look for Jesus to come again. We look around us at a world where there is much that has gone wrong. We look around us at a nation that has departed so largely from the truth and the standards of the word. But the message is the same. Against the darkness, against the problems, in the pressure of the situation, we must get our bearings. And we can only do so if we have an adequate view of Jesus Christ, of who he is, of how much he has already accomplished, but supremely of what he has committed by God still to accomplish. We are on a journey. There is a dynamic, there is a vision, there is a goal. We are not yet at the New Jerusalem, we are not yet in Eden Restored.